Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes, Jonah Goldberg, and David French. This week, lots to talk about. The Biden administration is unveiling a $2 trillion infrastructure package. We got to talk about vaccine passports and the soft launch of the 2024 campaigns, plus the decline of church membership. right in. Steve, $2 trillion infrastructure package. $2 trillion infrastructure package that is likely to be the first of two major infrastructure packages, the other one costing potentially as much as this $2.3 trillion proposed package from the White House. We're just getting details of the White House's proposal. We've known that the White House wanted to do this. We've known roughly that they wanted to break it up into two different uh, proposals, but we're now seeing some of the of the details. $600 billion for America's infrastructure, uh, $300 billion for domestic manufacturers, $200 billion in housing infrastructure, lots of additional priorities. They're, they're pitching this as a jobs plan, as a climate change plan, uh, national broadband, modernizing the, the power grid, upgrading school facilities, research and development projects, drinking water safe. If if it's a priority of Democrats, it's likely somewhere in this bill um, or will be in the next one. How are they going to pay for it? Well, the White House says that they're going to pay for it with a, a wide variety of new taxes, bumping up the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%, global minimum tax paid from 13% to 21%, going after fossil fuels, ending tax breaks for fossil fuel companies, and raising taxes on the wealthy in a variety of ways. My first question actually goes to you, Sarah, since you addressed the polling on some of this in this week's sweep. This is something, it, at least at the beginning, seems unlikely to get much Republican support. And the White House doesn't really seem to be looking for much Republican support. They're embracing this as a New Deal-style major transformative spending project on top of the $1.9 trillion in COVID relief that was actually really COVID relief and a lot more. Uh, And as I said, they're going big in all likelihood with another one of these. You would think that this might be something Republicans would object to and fight pretty uh, strongly. Are you getting the sense that Republicans will do that? And if so, what does the polling tell us about the popularity of these kinds of spending initiatives and the taxes that are being discussed uh, to pay for at least part of them? So much there and so much to talk about on this, on that exact question. So first of all, what's interesting about this plan to me on the politics is that it kind of ignores the re-scrambling of the parties that, is, that have been going on. On the one hand, Republicans are in a bit of a tough spot. Hard to say, bah, limited government, when you didn't care about spending or limited government for the last four years in like a really, really obvious, you know, outrageous way. Uh, on the other hand, there are Democrats who have already said they're not going to vote for this bill. On the progressive left, they've said there's not enough on climate change. In the middle, there's some balking at the spending and, uh, you know, on the more conservative side, they're concerned about some of the, um, you know, businesses moving overseas, stuff like that. But I found it. So polling wise, uh, this is going to be incredibly popular at the front end. Calling something an infrastructure bill is good for polling business, if you will. Um, and then the top lines that the administration is putting out, which is what people are going to hear first very popular. Talking about fixing roads and bridges, that always gets bipartisan support and polling. I think that the hundred billion or so that they are saying is in the bill for expanding broadband connectivity across the country will be incredibly popular. What's interesting is as you see the shift in political constituencies where union workers are actually shifting a little more towards the Republicans uh, and you have a college divide college-educated voters more likely to be Democrats, non-college educators 
educated, more likely to be Republicans. Um, this bill will appeal to a lot of those new Republicans. Now, whether they'll stay Republicans, whether that this will somehow stem that shift, maybe that's what the Biden administration is thinking. Um, I find that to be a fascinating element of this between the sort of pro-union stuff and the broadband stuff that will hit uh, mostly rural communities, frankly, um, a lot to, to like in polling when you ask folks. Now, here's the flip side. They haven't heard the opposition to the bill. They haven't heard those little things that are in the bill that people seize on that will drive them crazy and will drive down the numbers. But we had this conversation a couple weeks ago where Republicans have had options to really message on legislation and on policy like they did with Obamacare and just nosedive the popularity of a bill into the ground once they grab onto the messaging. But they seem pretty distracted. We used Dr. Seuss as an example last time. They may, that may be the stand-in for us for a while of sort of seizing on a cultural issue that has nothing to do with the workings of government uh, and then letting these big bills sail through. Big question for the Democrats, though, if they're not seeking Republican support in the Senate, are they willing to blow up the filibuster on that? Lots, lots there as well uh, <laughs> to pick up on. Um, Jonah, I'll go to you next. I think one of the most interesting points Sarah raises is this intra-Republican split. I mean, we've talked about this uh, on the podcast several times before you've uh, looked at it pretty intensely in, uh, on the remnant. There's this huge split among Republicans about uh, rep- sort of traditional, we might call them movement conservative style Republicans on the one hand, um, which I would say with establishment Republicans were kind of the, the dominant forces in the Republican Party over the past four decades. And on the other hand, a, a group of new right Republicans who seem much more comfortable with big government, so long as big government pursues the ends that they deem correct or, or, or in support of the common good. Are Republicans, g- given the lack of focus in the, the last five years from Republicans on spending and size and scope of government issues in general, and this split in particular, do you expect Republicans will be able to mount any kind of a serious uh, attack or counterattack or, or uh, critique of, of what the Democrats are proposing here? No. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> David. Uh, yeah, 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 I mean, part of the problem is that, I mean, it's almost a sociological problem, is the, the number of sort of fiscal hawk conservatives who were known as fiscal hawk conservatives, including some friends of mine, you know, like Larry Kudlow, you know, and, um, you know, and Kevin Hassett, and, and then other people who I wouldn't necessarily call friends anymore, so I won't have to name them. But um, uh, they went along. They gave permission structure for all the stuff that Trump wanted to do. They uh, gave uh, rhetorical and political cover for all sorts of grandiose, you know, big spending things. I mean, I used to joke that George W. Bush was spending money like a pimp with a week to live. And now he looks like frugal compared to every president we've had since. And um, and I think, it, so at this point, part of the problem is, is that those people don't have the, the, the heavy hitter credibility with it, it, it within the conversation on the right that they once did. Um, I'll, as I mentioned, I think the last time I was on here, the, the, I think part of the problem for Republican politicians is rather than actually open themselves up to the charge of hypocrisy, they're just staying quiet, you know? Um, and, uh, and meanwhile, the Trump years created this new avenue for people often fighting against straw men, you know, calling them market fundamentalists and, and saying that the libertarians ran Washington for the last 30 years, but it is, they have now gotten a beachhead on in the right wing conversation uh, to say that conservatives really shouldn't be opposed to big sweeping spending programs and industrial policy and all that. I mean, there, there are some people who are smart about it and say, you don't have to go back to raw libertarianism to still care about debt and deficit, but they're, they're a minority among that crowd. Um, the majority of that crowd, you know, 
basically laid down markers that they're in favor of massive spending. And, and so now their only objections have to be on some specifics that the Democrats are going to be spending on, and that's going to make it a culture war fight. It's not going to be about spending. It's not going to be about debt. It's not going to be about deficit. It's going to be about, look how they want to spend your tax dollars on, you know, uh, teaching lesbian poetry in the antebellum South or something. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But it's not going to be, uh, but it can't be like we're against the actual spending and growth of government stuff because that argument has been nullified. And so you get this catalytic effect that everything has to be a culture war fight because that's the only space left for a lot of these guys to be consistent on and to fight on and to say things that the audience actually wants to hear anyway. So that, David, is a, an extraordinarily depressing assessment of the current situation. <laughs> <laughs> Inaccurate. See, Inaccurate. The great thing is that in these days, depressing and accurate are synonyms. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> but that's, but that's, I mean, on, you know, as, as somebody who considers himself a, an, and sort of an old school movement, conservative, classical liberal, uh, conservative libertarian, look, size and scope of government really matters to me in some ways. It's the thing that we should be fighting about most. And Jonah's argument is basically, yeah, that's probably not going to be the fight. Uh, it hasn't been the fight in the past five years. It's not going to be the fight now in part because it hasn't been the fight in the past five years. But the underlying fundamentals of government and our spending, our debts and deficits, haven't changed. If anything, the the rather urgent situation, I think, approaching a debt crisis has, has become more urgent. You had $5.3 trillion in spending on COVID relief before the latest COVID relief package. You're approaching $28 trillion in debt, $85,000 per person in the United States. And the Republican Party can't mount an argument about the size and scope of government? Uh, yeah. You know, there's an irony here in the in when Jonah was talking about the new right guys. A lot of these guys are simultaneously people who believe in, quite frankly, a lot of the provisions that were in uh, that that are in the infrastructure plan, who quite frankly believe what's in some of the provisions that were in the COVID relief package. But they're also people who are convinced that Biden is a threat to the existence of the country. And so there's a, a, a mandatory total resistance against Biden, even in the face of maybe some provisions or some things you might like. These two things are happening at the same time. And then if you kind of put that into the conservative media ecosystem, as near as I can tell, Republicans, if if all you did was watch sort of Fox or OAN or Newsmax or talk in talk radio, as near as I can tell, Republicans voted 100% against the $1.9 trillion package to save Dr. Seuss. So, you know, I think that it's like culture war all the way down, but because there is so much culture war hostility, it's foreclosing compromise on other things that maybe Republican voters might want. But what Republican voters, especially primary voters, really want is culture war. And culture war means massive resistance to the Biden agenda. Um, he, you know, here's the thing that I, I wonder about, though. What I wonder about is if a Biden gets frustrated as, and sees all of his big legislative initiatives stacking up like ships waiting for the clearing of the Suez Canal, if he says, here's the strategic filibuster busting, it's infrastructure. It's not hyper divisive stuff like the Equality Act. It's not hyper divisive stuff like voting. It's infrastructure. Sorry, I had to get rid of the infrastructure to repair roads and bridges. That's what I had to do. I mean, I get had rid to of get the rid of the filibuster. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Get rid of the filibuster to repair roads and bridges. I had to get, that's how bad they are, America. They wouldn't let me repair the bridges in your town. They wouldn't let me repair and widen the roads that you're, have, that you're stuck on every day in your commute. That's how intransigent they were. So that's why the filibuster had to go. It wasn't to wipe out religious liberty. It's not to pack the court. It's not for all of those things. They wouldn't even let me build a bridge. And I, and I think that if you're, if you're talking about sort of politically, strategically, about busting the filibuster, I wonder if an infrastructure bill 
which would be widely popular, that is n- not doesn't touch nearly the same third rails that voting does or the uh, Equality Act does. If that's how this ends up happening, uh, and and if I was a if I was a Republican in the Senate, I might be thinking hard about if that was a possibility. Also, just to note, this is an infrastructure bill. Calling it an infrastructure bill is both good messaging and also pretty accurate. But that second bill you talked about, Steve, that they're calling the second infrastructure bill is like infrastructure in a metaphorical sense. I mean, everything is infrastructure, right? If the U.S. Congress is doing it, they're trying to build up America. Um, If Republicans let them call that second bill an infrastructure bill, they should cease to be a political party because that is malpractice politically. I accept well, your you terms. might have a point. You might have a point there. <laughs> Look, I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, I, I would love to offer a, a sharply different um, understanding of the current political dynamics than we've heard from the three of you. Uh, unfortunately, in this uh, instance, I think you're you're wise and prophetic. I think we're likely to to have a, a debate uh, with a lot of discussion from Republicans, a lot of shouting from Republicans about socialism while not actually really fighting these kinds of pretty significant. And again, in the terms of the Biden White House, self-described transformative New Deal style uh, overhaul of the way that the the U.S. government uh, relates to its citizens. Um, I think there will be a big fight. I just don't think Republicans will make many actual points on the specifics of expanding government. I, I agree with all that. And I agree with all the, for the most part, all the punditry here, including the punditry that came out of my pie hole. But I do think <laughs> that if um, we are, if you were like a historian looking back 25 years from now, assuming that we're not all living in caves, um, uh, one of the, I think the sort of meta narrative things to get all grandiose about all this that has been going on is what we're witnessing is like I I have friends who tell me not to worry about inflation who I trust and I and I, you know if Ramesh Panuru who spends a lot of time thinking about this tells me there's not a lot of evidence that inflation is coming I'm not saying that makes him right it just means that may that by and by my lights makes it de facto a reasonable position to hold and he could still be wrong but I don't know and I find it all witchcraft. But I think as a political and psychological matter, to live in a society that no longer actually cares about inflation and no longer actually cares about debt and deficit, whether it's right on the economic facts or not, gets you this kind of stuff. We have spent um, the, 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 the American Recovery Act alone thing was $100 billion more than the total GDP of Italy. And collectively, we basically have spent the GDP of Western Europe or close to it on the pandemic. And that doesn't even count all the stuff that's on the books that's technically not spending from the Federal Reserve. And if you did put that on the books, you'd double it again in terms of loan guarantees and all that kind of stuff. If there's no inflation, that's great. If debt doesn't matter anymore, that's great. But what defines your politics when you might as well be printing trillion dollar coins when money, when these rules don't apply? I... No one's ever lived in that society successfully. So it's just, it's, uh, it's undiscovered country. And it, it's, it, and I don't know what's going to happen, but it's fascinating politics where you have two parties that basically want to compete over who can spend more. Hey, we'll take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe 10000 thousand dollars or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch. All right. Speaking of popularity, let's move from the very popular to the pretty unpopular. Jonah, 
Vaccine passports. Yeah, so... Um, what? Wait, before before you tell us about the outrage around vaccine passports, can can you tell me what a vaccine passport is? No. Uh, oh. <laughs> no, I can't. So maybe the we can cut is, this conversation a little short. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, so the problem, so it depends. Israel actually has a vaccine, like a legit, straightforward vaccine passport. It's the, called like the Green Pass. And once you have it, you can go into bars and restaurants and hair salons and, and um, you still have a hard time surprisingly finding a good bagel in Israel, but, but your COVID status won't affect it if you have the green pass kind of thing. But like the, I have a white card with the CDC logo on the top that has in handwriting my name and the date that I got my first shot. Why isn't that already a vaccine passport? Yeah, so that's the thing, right? So in America, there is no thing that is like your official, you know, here's my vaccine passport folio kind of thing that some guy in a trench coat with a German accent asks you for or anything like that. And so there are a lot of people talking past each other. I mean, you got to remember that there was a time not long ago where there were people, I mean, I remember this Washington, the Washington Times writer talked about how wearing a mask made you made a, the 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 push towards wearing mask was an embrace not just of maoist values but of asian values and totalitarianism and that this was the sinicization of america and yada yada, yada. so people can be unreasonable on some of these things i just want to put that out there Shocking. as a placeholder um but so there is a lot of talk about requiring some kind of document uh, um, a lot of corporations are going to require, are thinking about requiring it for sporting events, stadiums, that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of businesses are going to require it for liability reasons for their employees to come back to the office. And, um, and this is causing widespread confusion about, and, and outrage and culture war posturing on both sides where one side wants to, where one group is portraying this as um, Orwellian, you know, uh, 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 police state stuff. Coincidentally, these are the same people who really liked the idea of like Arizona's ID card stuff for immigration. Uh, they like voter ID, but like having a document that shows you've been vaccinated strikes them of a police state. And on the other side, there is a whiff of sort of vengeance porn to this where you listen to some folks on msnbc talking about how the people who don't get their vaccine passports um have no right to complain because they're dumb republican white men and they deserve to be locked out of their livelihoods and all the rest i find most of this culture war fight stuff absurd and dumb and like not tied very much to the facts, as far as I can tell. Maybe I've missed some article in my reading and on in my homework on all of this. Um, but as a practical matter, I think I'm torn about it, and I don't know exactly. And I can walk through the I think the practical problems with with how this would or would not work. But um, I'll throw it to you, David. Am I missing something? Are you like, why is Jonah completely buttering his explanation of the vaccine passport <laughs> no. issue? Or, I mean, is, or do I have it about right? I, I, you know, I was, I've been thinking about this, this argument for like the last 24 hours because I, I want to write about it. And I finally have figured out exactly what I think about the conversation right now, that it's wildly premature and unnecessary and therefore unnecessarily divisive. And why do I say this? We're still in a stage where there is more vaccine, I mean, more demand for the vaccine than there is vaccine. And we're still in a stage where we're working through the persuasive aspects of breaking down vaccine hesitancy, where we're making steady progress in getting a greater and greater number and percentage of Americans vaccinated. We don't yet know what the world is going to look like by say July 1, or when you can honestly say there's now more than enough vaccine to vaccinate every single person who is of the age that they need to be vaccinated. And therefore, we will now start to impose limitations or restrictions on those people, whether coming from government or private sources, on those people who choose not to be vaccinated. 
So we're a long way away from that. I mean, not long way, weeks, couple months. Once we get to that point, there's, we're going to know a lot more. We're going to know what is the current rate of infection. I mean, wh- how, how flat and gone is the curve? How many people are getting sick? Um, is this a thing where the combination of the number of people who've been vaccinated plus the number of people who've already had the virus means that we really are in a situation where it's been largely stamped out? Uh, so we don't really have to have this conversation. And then in what context is the are we going to be sort of requiring the vaccine. I think if it's left up to private entities and private businesses, those public-facing businesses like grocery stores, like shopping malls, like Walmart, Costco, highly unlikely that they would say, you've got to have a vaccine card to enter. Highly unlikely. I mean, number one, they're going to trigger a big public backlash. Number two, they're going to limit their customers, people who have been shopping um, for throughout the pandemic in their, you know, in their uh, corridors. Um, what about people who live, who, if some, a, an employer says, okay, it's time for everybody to get off Zoom, come back to our cubicles in our small office, but we need you to be vaccinated. Well, that's much more likely. And that's something that's going to trigger a whole lot less public outrage than saying, I can't even get like milk at Costco without a card? Are you crazy? Or what about big indoor events where people are closely packed like arenas? Well, that's a, you know, that's a different kind of issue. So again and again, what we're racing towards is here's my government, you know, I'm holding up my phone, everybody. Here's my, here's my government app that gives me my pass into life. And if you don't have my government app that gives me a pass into normal life, then I'm a second-class citizen. That seems to be the way the argument's breaking down. And I don't think that's the way the argument is going to break down once we know and have a sense of how many people have been vaccinated, what is the state of the virus. And so for now, I kind of want to say, let's just chill for a minute. Let's just wait for a minute and see where we are. We are making progress on vaccinating. We are making progress on vaccine hesitancy. And hey, if if corporations decide by July, August, September, hey, to to come back and work in our cubicle uh, farm, (laughs) you've got to be vaccinated. Fine, fine. But I seriously doubt a Costco is going to be saying, you got to wave a green card to get into this building. And I doubt the Biden administration will want to pick that fight. For one thing, there's going to be a lot of constitutional limitations on their power. So wildly premature as a debate and therefore unnecessarily divisive. Steve, did you listen to last week's interview with uh, Dr. Tom Frieden that we did? I assume so. Yes. I So I was surprised, but thought he made a persuasive case for why we actually don't want employers mandating vaccines for people to come back to work. You know, I, I expected because of his job and his role that he'd be like, yes, we we need to do everything we can to incentivize people to take vaccines. And instead, what he said is, look, uh, it's not necessary and it's going to backfire. And that's not a world we want right now. Uh, at the same time and separately, you know, I have several uh, girlfriends who are pregnant. And look, doctors are saying like, yeah, you can take the vaccine if you want. We don't know any particular side effects on pregnancy. At the same time, there really hasn't been enough to study. And so we don't know what we don't know. It's up to you. And so a lot of those women are deciding not to get the vaccine until after they've had the baby. It would seem outrageous to me, for instance, to David's somewhat extreme point, but maybe not, if CVS, which is a private company, for instance, said, no one can enter our CVSs unless you've had the vaccine, you know, unless you're under the age of 16 or something. And so all these pregnant women can't get milk, you know, like, well, that's not going to work. So, and that's not going to happen, I think is also David's point which I agree with, because the second we are in a position where we could have these sort of mandatory vaccines, people are going to realize that like, oh, wait, actually, that's not feasible. Well, I think it's really cute that you and David both think that the facts of this and reality is going to help shape the debate as this (laughs) moves forward. I I would love that to be true. But as we've seen, I think, early it, it doesn't. I mean, th- th- you're going to have this kind of uh, 
back and forth from proponents and opponents in, I think, pretty much precisely the way that Jonah laid out at the outset. And then, and it probably isn't the case that reality will shape those debates, maybe until the very end. I mean, I think, David, you know, as you're looking at sort of late summer into the fall, it's possible that that, um, that that reality intrudes and helps shape how we approach this as a society. I, I mean, I think this is one of these issues that's just a really hard issue. There are good arguments on on both sides. I, I do share the concerns of folks that the White House's um, insistence that there would be no uh, that there would be no federal vaccine registry or anything like this notwithstanding. I share the con- I share the privacy concerns. I share the concerns uh, that Jonah mentioned about uh, this as a punitive m- measure or as a primarily a punitive measure. Um, and I think there are real there are real issues um, around that. On the other hand, we mandate vaccines for kids going to school on a pretty routine basis. Kids are not allowed to go to school if they don't have certain vaccines. Virtually everywhere in the United States. And we haven't seen the kind of apocalyptic language, except from sort of fringy anti-vaxxers, around those mandates. And, you know, at a certain level, mandates around hepatitis and measles, mumps and rubella and other things are why we're able to to flourish the way we're able to flourish. But I think that we're likely to see this kind of pitched culture war shouting back and forth um, because it works for the people who are involved in it. Naomi Wolf, who's now become a staple on Fox, former Clinton advisor, now become a, a staple on on Fox News. Um, also a crazy person. I want to be clear about yes. this. I mean, she's she's, um, she's increasingly making arguments that are um, that that certainly sound unhinged said of the of the possibility of vaccine passports. This is the most dangerous tool humanity has faced in my lifetime if not ever, in terms of human <laughs> liberty, setting aside minor concerns like slavery and other other issues. The nuclear she, bomb. She equated this to, <laughs> to slavery. And un- unfortunately, I don't think that's nutpicking. She increasingly represents a, a sizable chunk of this kind of right-left um, hysterical... <laughs> Um, group on these questions, on questions of of lockdowns, on questions of vaccines. So I'm not confident this is going to get better anytime soon in terms of our public debate. Two quick points. Um, One, fascinating Gallup poll data came out showing, uh, fascinating, fascinating is also another synonym for um, depressing, uh, that showed that uh, the people least likely to get the vaccine are also the least likely to social distance, the least likely to mask, the least likely to do all of these things. And I'm not for the punitive aspect of the passport stuff, but at the same time, if 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 my colleagues and my family and my friends are vaccinated and the people who aren't vaccinated want to be foolish, I think that's bad for the country. It's going to get somebody infected who doesn't want to be infected and all that kind of stuff. But it does minimize the harms in, in, in sort of in the terms of the moral hazard of it. Um, and second of all, I, I think, and this is a heartwarming tale. It's one of my favorite stories, and I don't know when I'm ever going to be able to tell it again where it's going to be relevant. But um, at, this is sort of to Sarah's point. People are going to use their receipt as a passport for anybody who wants proof that you have um, been vaccinated or they're going to use the app. My kid's school requires an app and that kind of thing. And it reminds me of, Back when I guess Sarah was in kindergarten in the early '90s, late '80s, there was a um, uh, David will remember uh, a big hullabaloo. It was the first hullabaloo about flag burning, and in Louisiana, they passed a bill that said it would be a twenty-five dollar fine to beat up a flag burner caught in the act. And the next day or the next week, there was a line outside the municipal building in a couple towns for people wishing to pre-purchase what they considered to be their flag burners beating license. 
so that if they caught a flag burner in the process, cop comes over, hey, what's going on here? You pull it out of your wallet and say, hey, I have a permit. And I think that that shows you that everybody is going to, in a Hayekian faction, figure out how to deal with these problems proactively, because that's the great pragmatic spirit of America. (laughs) (laughs) I have one uh, one thing I learned during this vaccine rollout that I uh, was wrong about on the front end and think that I now understand more about on the back end that I wanted to share with you guys, which is on the front end, I thought sort of dividing up into 1A, 1B, 1C kind of made sense. I thought that would be just fine. Now watching it in action, I now believe it was the worst possible way to do this vaccine rollout. We should have done it more like we were doing grocery stores uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. The first two hours are um, only for people over the age of 65, but then it's a free-for-all because it's causing a lot of friction and transaction cost to force people into a line. A lot of folks feel like it's morally you know, wrong to jump the line, but then there's you know vaccines that aren't getting into people's arms and slots available. Uh, So I hope that everyone learned something from this. I feel like I did, which is, aha, it turns out, uh, and someone could have told us this in advance, right? The more you divide things up and try to put people in order like we do on airplanes, actually, that causes friction and slows things down. So we need to do it more like Southwest where, you know, people kind of get into a line and then you get them all on the plane. Um, All right. Next step. Yeah, well, again, w- one quick thing on that. Not only that, Sarah, I couldn't agree with you more, but then you put everyone in 1A, 1B, 1C, and then impose the honor system. So it is completely based on whether or not you're going to check a box. And if you check a box, there's no question asked. And then number two, having wildly different demands by geography. And so not that, wildly different supply, as it turns out. Yes. And so you end up with vaccine, you know, people traveling for the vaccine. Um, you have entire regions where, you know, you have people who cannot seem to get it and then other areas where they cannot seem to give it away. And it, yeah, it, it turned out to be incredibly inefficient. I think all the states need to open it up now to everyone over the age of 16. Um, and, you know, they ask for your birthday or whatever when you sign up for an appointment, then fine. Then prioritize people by their birthday age um, okay. And then give them their appointments that way. You could just set up an algorithm to do that. But this idea that you can't sign up or then you pre-register, but you pre it's a mess. It's a total mess. It's unnecessary. We've learned from it. Let's, let's not do this. Okay. Uh, guys, this week was exciting because C-SPAN started road to the white house 2024. Now, before you judge C-SPAN, I will note that the associated press Uh, says that this is not the earliest that C-SPAN has started a presidential campaign cycle. In February of 2005, C-SPAN started Road to the White House 2008, covering Mitt Romney and John Edwards in South Carolina and New Hampshire, respectively. So, hey, that's fun. This time it was Mike Pompeo speaking at the Machine Shed, which is like a a local chain in Iowa. He was in Urbandale speaking to the Westside Conservative Club for breakfast. By the way, Steve, they serve Midwest comfort food. Uh, what does that mean? Is that just all casseroles all the time? Just lots, lots of mayo? Lots of casseroles, tater tots, <laughs> cheese curds. It's, you know, really the height of uh, culinary excellence. Okay. So at the same time, Echelon Insights has been polling Republicans and lean Republican voters if Donald Trump does not seek the Republican nomination for president in 2024. And the Republican presidential primaries were being held today. For whom would you vote? So what I like about this poll, of course, is not that I think it reflects anything about who will be the Republican nominee. It does not. But because they're doing it every six weeks or so, we can compare who on the Republican side is gaining and losing traction. So, for instance, uh, Mike Pence lost five points in that poll. Um, Mike Pompeo gained three points in that poll. Tucker Carlson gained three points, interestingly. But the big winner for March was Ron DeSantis, who is now in first place, gaining nine points over the February poll, up to 17%. Although I will note that uh, the winner overall also gained 
nine points and to 35% to Ron DeSantis is 17%, 35% up nine points from February for unsure. <laughs> Steve, how do we start thinking about 2024? Yeah, it's. I mean, this this is fascinating. I, you pointed out in the sweep. I encourage everybody to read the sweep. For uh, now, this is my second reference. Um, just read the whole thing and read it uh, every time it's published. It's just very good. Uh, you pointed out in the sweep that what matters in these numbers is not the actual, you know, points here and there, but the sort of broad contours of this and the fact that this is taking place at all. As you say, Mike Pompeo going to Iowa, Tim Scott, senator from South Carolina, who I'm. Uh, believe strongly believe is going to run for president uh is, is also making trips to early primary states so are many others um the the pro the behind the scenes process of courting state legislators in places like south carolina new hampshire and iowa is well underway so this you know invisible primary is really happening right now um and it's important to pay attention to it I would I guess what's what's interesting to me is the the broader contours of this debate and how these candidates would be candidates want to position themselves. We've talked before on this podcast and certainly it's been a a big discussion nationally about the the, the sort of non-Trump Trump inheritors uh lane or category of of candidate and there are a lot of people virtually everybody listed and we'll drop the, the the polling in the in the show notes, or you can get it at the sweep. Is running as a sort of successor to Donald Trump, somebody who's who's taking Trump's legacy, taking Trump's issues, and building a candidacy around them, where they won't be Donald Trump, but can claim lay claim to to Trump's supporters, and hopefully get an endorsement from Donald Trump. That's that looks to be the 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 most popular path. Donald Trump is still popular with two thirds of Republican voters uh, on a, uh, on at least some basis. And it's where most of the voters are. So you shouldn't be surprised to do this. What's interesting is to watch what's happening elsewhere too. There was an Axios report today on a memo that representative Jim Banks, the head of the Republican study committee shared with Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the house of representatives in which banks effectively said, we have to Republican party has to embrace Donald Trump. There's no other path. We have to remake ourselves as a working class party sort of in the image of Donald Trump and took a shot at, at folks who don't agree with that path. Um, I think without naming or notably Liz Cheney, Anthony Gonzalez, Adam Kinziger, people like that, saying in effect, there's no room for that embittered group. One of the most interesting things to to follow over the the coming years, particularly in this presidential context, is what happens with that group that's not as enthusiastic about Donald Trump. Um, it's going to be impossible for Republicans to win the presidency in 2024 without that group. Uh, and is as you see candidates for playing for a Republican primary positioning, one after another after another, lining up in the pro-Trump side of things, uh, I think it'll be as interesting or more interesting to see who runs with the opposite uh, set of issues and the opposite frame. Jonah, why do you think Ron DeSantis is on the rise? Oh, um, because of co mostly because of COVID politics, because CPAC was in uh, Florida and got all sorts of uh, free media for it. Um, I think uh, I don't know if, I guess this polling doesn't take into account Christy Noem's recent stumbles, but, um, I think DeSantis in some ways, you know, the, the, the Floridian captivity of the GOP, um, has, you know, because, uh, Trump's to camp down there, CPAC to camp down there. Um, and because floor and because Cuomo's done badly, DeSantis is this great foil against, you know, the, the shutdowners and the mask enforcers and all that kind of stuff. Um, it just seems like a great issue climate for him and he's getting a lot of free media as a result. Um, I don't think, I mean, I, I'm kind of with Sarah on this. I think that none of this presidential speculation stuff matters a whit right now except as sort of 
fodder for sociological tea leaf reading of where the GOP is generally. Um, and I will be surprised if DeSantis is the front runner or the nominee or any of that kind of stuff if Trump doesn't run. Um, but I'd be surprised if basically any of them are at this point. And, um, and I just, I mean, I, I'm, 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 you know, it, it, this is like punditry 101, this topic. And I'm just not sure I have anything more to add that we haven't said a thousand <laughs> times before on this podcast. I mean, I agree with Steve. You can't, when you have a coalition that's only 48% of the public or of the electorate, losing 4% of your coalition might as well be losing 40% of your coalition if you, if, 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 if the goal is to get across the 50% line and this, this purge, the anti-Trump people thing is, uh, it seems, it strikes me as folly. And, um, and on the policy side, trying to win over more Trump voters through policy, I think is dumb because there's no evidence for it. So David, uh, I think it will be interesting because Ron DeSantis has sort of the most compelling message uh, I went against the mainstream media. I went against what everyone said we had to do. And my state actually had fewer COVID infections than California that was locked down and ruined their economy. Um, I am a governor. Hear me roar. Are we about to see the rise of the governors again? You know, I, I, I have been thinking that for a little bit because of the COVID narrative, that there are going to be governors who are going to be able to come out of this crisis moment in American history and say, I did what these guys did not do. And if you look at my record, my record at this moment of crisis. and Like and a record might this, actually be a compelling message for the first time in a while. And DeSantis has two things going for him. So I was just looking at some of the numbers. And Florida, believe it or not, is in the bottom half of the country in deaths per million. The bottom half of the country. It's 27th in the nation. And this was is with a disproportionately older population. and. So he ha he can already walk in and say, I was a governor of a big state. We didn't lock down in the same way that other states did. And we had a different policy with regarding regards to nursing homes. So he already has a policy-based argument with actual results that is pretty good. But he also has something else that I think makes him, in, in some ways, a really interesting post-Trump figure. He has a fight narrative that's all his own that does not involve Trump. In other words, he can sort of say, because early on in this in this pandemic, a lot of people in the media, not everybody, but a lot of people in the media sort of fixated on two governors, Cuomo and New York, as the model of how to deal with this and the reckless DeSantis. And so they were kind of tw twinned and paired up, and one of them has crumbled. One of them is discredited. One of them is now seen as a failure. And if you look at the numbers, has a much worse record on COVID deaths, much less all the other scandals. And one of them has come out of it. And, and still in the media, in many ways, many members of the media are just fixated on DeSantis as a, a uniquely pernicious figure. But he's got this record. And so he has two things. He has, he has one my own independent record of accomplishment in combating COVID. And number two, the media hates me. <laughs> and I, it's hard to come up with a better narrative at this moment. And I know a lot will change, but at this moment, what's a better narrative walking into a primary for a Republican politician? I've got all the right enemies and I've got the right record. That's a pretty formidable combination. I think it's really interesting. I think that DeSantis, unlike some of the other, like, I don't really know why they're rising in these sorts of polls. Um, I think you can point to the reason why DeSantis is on the rise. And I think he's got a, the most compelling message right now for Republican voters. A lot will change. We'll check back can I, can in, make, in April. Can I make one very self-serving point here? Mm. I deserve some praise and honor because we've been talking about the future of the GOP, the 2024 presidential race. Florida, and I have not once taken the bait to dance a jig about Matt Gates. I'm just saying <laughs> I deserve some credit for this. And Jonah, we, can, we can move on. We I gave you on. credit I just, I, in our Slack channel for the best tweet of the day. Did you not see me just rollicking in 
hilarity. So Jonah tweeted an hour ago, <laughs> the, <laughs> the quote, for, see, I can't even do it without laughing. So Matt Gates gave a quote, someone is trying to recharacterize my generosity to my former dinner companions as something more untoward. And so Jonah tweeted that the same quote, someone is trying to characterize my generosity toward my former dinner companions as something more untoward, quote, Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, he said to my former girlfriends, I changed that to former dinner companions. But anyway, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's. We're so it, impressed, I know, Jonah. Thank you. Thank you. So Steve impressed. is making boss face because he thinks that we shouldn't follow this kind of like sewer rat clickbait politics stuff. And schadenfreude has no place in proper journalism. And all I can say is it would take a heart of stone not to laugh. And, well, and how I, about when he tried to pull Tucker into the story by saying, remember woo. us having dinner? And Tucker yeah. was like, new phone, who dis? <laughs> and Tucker was, <laughs> I, for the record, I, I don't know who that, I don't remember that. Oh, man. <laughs> Man, we did a we did a great job of not talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. All right, David, last up. New poll showing that church membership has dramatically declined recently. Okay, so this is, was it the last Dispatch Live when one of the members asked us, what's a huge story that is, there's not enough attention paid to it? And in my mind, I had two things that went, I went back and forth on. One was decline in fertility, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. Uh, the other thing I was thinking of, but then a lot of attention has been paid to it, and more attention is being paid to it, is the secularization of this country. And there was a Gallup poll that came out that illustrated not just how much America has secularized, but at what a remarkable rate. So in 1940, 73% of Americans reported that they were a member of a church, synagogue, or mosque. In 2000, 70% of Americans reported they were a member. So within the margin of error. So it's, it's 40 to 2000, 60 years of stasis since 2000, the number has dropped precipitously, and now it is 47% of Americans who believe, who are part of a church, synagogue, or mosque. In other words, a majority are not. And this is a significant cultural change, and uh, one that's, I think, underappreciated in sort of the ramping up of the intensity of our politics. Uh, I, you know, let me, let me go first to you, Jonah. Uh, I don't actually think necessarily Americans are becoming less religious. I think they're tr putting their religious impulse into other things besides church, synagogue, and mosque. What say you? Oh, I'm with you. This has been a hobby horse of mine for years. Um, one of my favorite theologians last, slash philosopher types was Will Herberg, who used to say that human beings should be described as homo religio. Um, because we have a natural religious instinct and, um, and in the last 50 years, there's been so much evolutionary psychology work, last 30 years, so much evolutionary psychology work that sort of confirms what Darwin had written about is that we are hardwired to want to be, to, to be religious. You read Jonathan Haidt and the, the relationship between religion and politics and culture in our brain is so intertwined that it's sort of silly to say, oh, this is the part about religion and this is the part about politics and this is the part about hygiene and whatnot. And, um, and I'm not saying, I'm not making this as an atheistic argument. I'm making this as just sort of, I think this is part of human nature. This is how, to put it succinctly, this is how God made us. And um, that said, I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, social justice stuff basically maps as a religious impulse. Uh, a lot of environmentalism, you know, I mean, it's a little outdated now, but people should read um, uh, Michael Crichton's famous San Francisco Commonwealth Club speech about how the narrative of environmentalism tracks a lot of the great religions 
narratives. We were born in a pristine time. Then we had a fall from grace because of now scientific or technical knowledge and the world is corrupted and now we must return to it. I think that the, the way our politics works in, and I, I should also say there's this guy, Michael Burley, who has written a bunch of fantastic histories of Europe of, of, uh, about how he made this case about Europe for a long time is that a lot of the conflicts of the 20th century were continuations of the conflicts of the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. Just the wars of religion got called something else. And so I think this is a very serious thing. It's a very rich, rich topic. At the same time, I, I do wonder what it means for American exceptionalism, because one of the things that used to define American exceptionalism was this idea that we were both the most industrially advanced and also the most religious nation in the world, which made us huge outliers. And if that's gone, um, and sort of in the context of the conversation we had at the beginning about two parties that just like to spend money on different versions of the welfare state, this could be part of us basically turning into Europe where you don't have limited government parties and you don't, and religion is a vehicle through the religious impulses is filtered through politics. David, I want to turn this on you though. I have kind of a why now question and whether the churches bear some responsibility for this. Oh (laughs) yeah. I mean, this is, this is uh, one of my hobby horses that, um, one of you know, there's a couple of things going on at, at the same time. Look, there's a lot of cultural changes outside of church. And then there's an awful lot of, quite frankly, and, and this is something I've reported on most recently uh, in, in my, or with distressing regularity in my Sunday newsletter, that there has been, there have been a number of just really terrible scandals in church re- stre- uh, stretching back for years. Um, you know, the Catholic scandals, we've had a number of sort of what uh, in in evangelical circles are called church two scandals regarding major religious institutions within evangelicalism, but also something else has happened. And it, it's if you really look at what's going on and you dive into the numbers, what you're going to see is that a lot of people who would previously sort of be like nominal, what you might call nominal church attenders or nominal believers, are now just switching to nuns. And N-O-N-E-S's. They're not becoming nuns in <laughs> That'd be a big story. That would be huge. Yeah, that would be huge. That would be huge. Um, so a lot of the people who are more nominal are becoming nuns. But evangelical, the percentage of Americans that's evangelical is, is holding pretty darn steady. So what you're ending up with is a kind of religious divide in this country between sacred and secular where there isn't a much as much squishy middle. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's becoming so sharp. But another interesting thing, Ryan Burge, a uh, statistician at Eastern Illinois University, has noted that a lot of evangelicals are becoming less church-going. So they're still listing themselves as quite intensely religious, but are the evangelical label is becoming more of an, a political identity marker and less of a specific religious practice marker. And so all of this is, is, is dividing us in a really interesting way. And I think, yeah, I mean, a church lives in a culture. The culture influences the church. But the church has had an enormous role, I think, in its own decline. Yeah, my, my question was, was along the same lines. Uh, back to you, David. I mean, we've seen at the same time we've seen these numbers drop off a cliff uh, as it relates to, to church membership from 2000 to today. We've seen a an attendant loss of faith in any number of other institutions in society, and on the one hand, it's it's uh, tempting to chalk this up largely to that broader cultural phenomenon that people just don't believe in institutions, don't trust in institutions, don't want to be part in institutions in in a in a way that may or may not be sort of religion specific. On the other hand. There's data that you've written about before um, that church attendance tracks these same numbers, which would suggest it it does it, it is something that is, if not unique to uh, religion, um, at least uh, uh, not something that's anomalous. Is that a fair way of looking at the problem? No, I, I think the institutional issue is an important piece of this. And so let's look, for example, at the largest institution in American Protestant Christianity, the Southern Baptist, Baptist Church. They, 
they're really good about keeping records. Um, and in June of 2020, they released that they'd lost 2% of membership last year, which was the largest drop in more than a century. And this is the, a church that had grown considerably throughout um, a lot of the earlier sort of religious conflicts in America where, you know, the mainline churches were becoming far more progressive and were losing a ton of members. A lot of people joined the SBC so much that it grew to like number one in the rankings by far in Protestant denominations. And now it's trending down now. But interestingly, a lot of those people who are leaving the SBC aren't leaving Christianity. They're instead, they're joining independent non-denominational churches. So they're in a situation where they are, um, it's not that they're leaving evangelicalism, they're just leaving the institution of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so we're back in this situation where uh, you have some sort of, you have a lot of institutional decline. But I still think, you know, it, you cannot look at this decline in belief and track it across all sectors of American religion. That's just not the way it's working. If you're looking at where there has been decline, it has been in mainline Protestantism has just fallen off a cliff, more sort of nominal Catholicism falling off a cliff, but the sort of more hardcore, much you might call, call hardcore evangelicals are staying pretty, pretty static. And it's in an interesting way, what that means is you're having a country that's becoming more secular while retaining its most religious core. And that's an interesting dichotomy because, you know, that you, that's almost tailor-made for maximum division, especially when you then lay overlay that, that th this, this secularization isn't occurring everywhere at the same rate. So if you're in the but Northeast- has, has or, that been, I'm sorry, has that been true for a while? I mean, this is, I remember Michael Novak talking about this years ago about how like, you know, if, if you make the leap of faith so to speak, that you want to live the military life. You don't want to go to the easiest, weird, you know, the, 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 the softest one. I mean, like you might join the Coast Guard for perfectly legitimate career reasons or whatever, but like if you really have that Spartan ethic, you want to be a Marine, right? And so like the people who were holding on to their congregants the most were the ones who asked the most from their congregants the Marines of organized religion, conservative and Orthodox Jews, uh, serious trad Catholics, serious evangelicals. And, um, and I, this sort of, I just, the, the falling off the cliff of the, the, the mainline Protestant churches, that's sort of getting to, to my point, which I get a little bit from Jody bottom, which is this idea that the mainline Protestant churches, because they didn't ask anything from anybody and they took their elite status in society more seriously than they took their religious convictions. They they're still the elites. They just gave up on the religion part and they just used the social justice stuff instead as, as their new gospel. And, and that's one of the reasons I think that's a huge part of the, the, the culture war stuff is that the two sides aren't literate in the other side's language anymore. Yeah. Well, and here's something to, to what to, to keep an eye on when you drill down in the numbers, the secularization of America is not, again, it's not uniform across um, race and, and partisanship. So where you've really seen the drop, just dramatic drop, it's in white Democrats. White Democrats and, and the religious affiliation of white Democrats has dropped in, dramatically. So what that means is the Democratic Party right now has the most and least religious American cohorts in its coalition. Black uh, Democrats, Black Protestants, they are amongst the most church-going people in the United States of America. Uh, by some measures, more church-going than uh, white uh, evangelicals. And then you also have white progressives that are the least church-going. So the Democrats have the most and least church-going coalition, and that, that divide has grown dramatically in the last several years. And I don't know that it is coincidental that post Obama, the Republican share of the black vote is slowly increasing because this is a new thing. There's long, there's long been a white progressive black um, Protestant alliance in the Democratic Party, but the white progressives have never been so secular. 
And I, that's a new cultural development. And we've yet to see how that is going to shake out over time because that creates a pretty intense culture clash because it's not just that black Protestants are religious, they're Orthodox religious, small O Orthodox. In other words, they are quite conservative in their view of the Bible. They're quite conservative in their view of religion. And I think that creates a cultural tension and, and we've yet to see how that's going to play out over the long term. Thank you so much for joining us. Subscribe to this podcast. Tell your friends about this podcast, but subscribing and rating this podcast is one of the best ways to get the word out. We so appreciate your support and we'll see you again next week. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Sorry. you, Jonah. (laughs) (laughs) Explicit rating. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.